Okay, Luke chapter 3, 15 through 22. If you have a Bible, please uh, follow along. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts the con- concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am, un- I am not worthy to, un- to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Dodds. Like Matt said, I'm one of the pastors here. Wonderful to be with you on the Lord's Day. At the beginning of this, of this chapter, of chapter 3, uh, much like he does in chapters 1 and 2, Luke sets the scene within the context of the wider world. It's rulers and empires, the kings and priests of Jerusalem. If you were to look back at at the beginning of chapter three, you would see that seven historical figures of leadership are mentioning in these opening verses. Tiberius Caesar, Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias, Annas, and Caiaphas. And and while I think there are probably a few reasons for that, I, I believe that what's happening in today's passage has something to say in light of those leaders. In John's baptism, Jesus is being anointed as the Messiah King. A new ruler is coming onto the world stage. And so from this time forward, all nations, these rulers named all nations and all rulers will have to reckon with him. As we mentioned previously, John the baptizer was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so his main job in being this forerunner was to foster a spirit of national repentance. Make way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. He was to prepare the way for the Messiah and to prepare the nation of Israel to receive her Messiah. The Jewish people have been waiting for the promised king for a long time and it was just, it was John's job to, to increase their sense of expectation. After all, he's the forerunner. He needs to get people ready. He's coming. He's coming. You've been waiting for a long time. I'm here to tell you that he's coming, and soon he's coming. And our opening verse today indicates that John, in preparing Israel, he was doing an exceptional job. So exceptional, it says here, that as the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. So John had a host of followers whom he had been teaching to expect the coming Messiah, 
but the Messiah had not come. And so all of them began to question, maybe, maybe John's actually the Messiah. Maybe John is the great redeemer. Maybe John is the one who is going to bring justice to our enemies and to restore us to our land. But John sets the record straight. He says this, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John was a mighty man of God. But here, he says that the coming Messiah is, is even mightier. And, and all of a sudden, we are in the world of, of all the illusions of Isaiah. John is presenting Jesus as, as a powerful warrior, as one who is mighty, and as one who, the straps of whose sandals, he, John, was not worthy to untie. It's a curious line from John to say this. Why mention great might and the untying of sandals together? Why? I think there are a few possible interpretations, all of which might be simultaneously true. Let's, let's consider three of them. First, just plainly read, John is declaring his own inferiority. The coming Messiah is so far superior that even to be called his servant would be too great an honor. Even to untie his sandals would be too great an honor. Secondly, this could be, as I just said, it could be a reference to Isaiah 63, where the Messiah is depicted as this mighty savior, this mighty warrior who treads in the winepress, meaning he, he tramples his enemies. He puts down his enemies. In ancient times, the process of, of making wine actually involved standing in a wine press and stomping on the grapes while barefoot with, without sandals. And Isaiah 63 indicates that the Messiah would be left all alone in fulfilling this task. That no one else could do it but him. Which may explain why John would have nothing to offer by way of assistance. I mean, John is saying to his followers, I, I can't even untie his sandals for him. He can complete the work of salvation single-handedly. But I think, there's, I think there is also, just thirdly, an even, an even deeper meaning in John's words here. In Deuteronomy 25, we're introduced to an, an Israelite custom known as, as the Leveret Law, which we, we studied a few years ago when we went through Ruth. I don't know if you all remember that. But according to the Leveret Law, if a married man died prior to having children, then his oldest surviving brother was expected to marry his widow and produce an heir. Why? Because in the ancient world, the situation of a childless widow was especially perilous, especially dangerous. They had no one to protect them. They had no one to provide for them. So the Leveret Law in Israel's life, it, it just guaranteed this relational and material stability for, for, the, for the weakest and, and the most in need in their people. More stability, more, 
more stability for childless widows. And so for this reason, the surviving brother was referred to as a kinsman redeemer. Remember that. But what happens if that brother refuses to marry his brother's widow? Well, listen to Deuteronomy 25. Let's look at it together. It says this. If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So if a man refuses to marry his brother's widow, the woman was instructed to remove his sandal and spit in his face. It's pretty standard. Um, We've all been there. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I don't mean to make fun of that. It's just, it is, it's, it's, it, it's, it's jarring. We see this principle in action though at the end of the book of Ruth, though it, takes, it does take on a slightly different form. If you remember, Ruth asks Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer, but Boaz was not her nearest relative. So, Boaz approaches the nearest kinsman, but that man was either unable or unwilling to be Ruth's redeemer. So the man refuses, transfers to Boaz the right and responsibility of redeeming Ruth. You, you do it. And the way that he does this, the way that he symbolizes this transfer is he takes off his sandal and he gives it to Boaz. So the custom in Israel was this. When a man forfeited his sandal, he was symbolically declaring someone else to be the bridegroom. For someone else to be redeemer, to be the redeemer. And isn't that what John is doing here? He's declaring that someone else is the bridegroom, the redeemer, not him. The people are wondering whether John is the Messiah. The people are wondering whether John has come to redeem them. But John is the friend of the bridegroom. As he says, he's not the bridegroom. So John is saying, far be it from me to claim what is not mine to claim, to redeem what is not mine to redeem. Israel is like Anna the prophetess from a few weeks ago, a childless widow. But John says he's not the one to make her fruitful again. There is a, near, a nearer kinsman, a redeemer to come, a bridegroom to come, and he will not forfeit his sandal. He will certainly redeem Israel. Okay, I promise you that we're not going to talk about sandals again today. But next, John says that whereas he baptizes with water, the Messiah to come will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
So according to John, the Messiah will work the threshing floor, dividing the wheat from the chaff. We'll get to the, the threshing floor in just a minute, but it's a jarring image. We've spent almost two months talking about the heavens singing and awe coming upon all the people and the long awaiters of God's promise bursting with joy. But the picture that John describes is a metaphor of judgment, which is not how we typically imagine the coming of Christ, right? It's true that Jesus came as a humble, merciful, suffering servant. He absorbed the wrath reserved for us. He purified us and loved us to the point of death. And anyone who repents of their sin and calls upon the name of Jesus is redeemed and welcomed into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus embodied the boundless grace of God. However, it's also true that Jesus will one day come as a perfectly just judge, and his judgment will be perfectly just. See, as John's saying here, he will not accidentally retain some of the chaff. He will not accidentally throw away some of the wheat. He knows all, he sees all. And that is very good news. That's why Christians can say that vengeance belongs to the Lord. That judgment belongs to the Lord. That is what enables us to be slandered and to not slander in return. To suffer persecution with dignity and trusting ourselves to the God who defends us. Jesus will one day come to make that all right and he will crush evil and he will bring an end to darkness. Interestingly, this mercy and judgment dynamic has always been, always been a feature of God's dealings with his people. The temple in Jerusalem, the place where the people would go to atone for their sins was actually built on a threshing floor. If you remember in, in 2 Samuel, David, King David, buys a threshing floor from a Jebusite, and then the temple is later built on that very plot of land by Solomon. And it's on the threshing floor that oxen would tread upon the grain. Much like the wine press, the grain could not be used for food or for offerings until it was actually trampled upon and separated from the chaff typically by oxen. And in the Bible, oxen are associated with Israel's priests. In the Bible, oxen are associated with the men who were appointed to serve in the temple. So the temple was built upon a threshing floor and like the oxen, the priests who were responsible for working the threshing floor the priests were responsible for working the threshing floor. So the priests were appointed as oxen to tread out the grain in the temple to make Israel fruitful, to make sure that she was fruitful. And interestingly enough, the priests who ministered in the temple were barefoot. Before a priest could enter the temple, he had to remove his sandals. This is holy ground. So I lied about the sandals. Um, it's not my fault, it just keeps coming up. Um, okay, so that's a lot. That's a lot that we just said right there. So let's just sit here for a moment. 
He's talking about threshing floors, sandals, grain, Israel being fruitful, the priests mediating that fruitfulness with God and with the people. If you remember, when Ruth asks Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer, she uncovers his bare feet as he sleeps. You remember where he was sleeping? Does anybody know where he was sleeping? That's perfect. Two-week cruise for whoever said that. <laughs> On the threshing floor, by, by uncovering his feet, Ruth is asking Boaz to tread out the grain. She's wanting Boaz to make a childless widow fruitful again. Now the Messiah is going to redeem Israel much like Boaz redeemed Ruth. He will claim her as, her, as his own. He will pay her debt. He will bring her into his house and he will tread out the grain and make Israel fruitful again. And I think that's what Luke is hinting at with his account of Jesus' baptism. As we see in verse 23, Jesus was about 30 years old at the time of his baptism. And 30 years old it was the age when every priest began his public ministry. And the beginning of a priest's public ministry was marked by a baptism. The priest was anointed with water. So all the imagery here is suggesting that the baptism of Jesus is functioning as his ordination into the priesthood. Jesus is being ordained to atone for sins and to tread out the grain to make Israel, to make all of the people fruitful again. Jesus was the kinsman redeemer who would raise up sons and daughters on behalf of his dead brother, Adam. He's restoring the family that died so that all the families of the world might live again. I think the imagery also helps to explain verses 19 and 20 because they kind of come out of nowhere, it seems. Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, to them all, that he locked up John in prison. At, at first read, the verses sound sort of like a, oh, and by the way, this happened too. The verses seem out of place, but just, but just consider this in the context of what we're talking about. King Herod had lusted after Herodias, was his, was his brother's wife. So King Herod divorced his own wife in order to take his brother's wife. So it's, it's, the, it's a picture of the, just the exact opposite of the Leveret Law. Rather than honoring his brother by providing for his brother's wife, he's dishonoring his brother by taking his brother's wife. So Luke is presenting King Herod. He's like, look, look at Jesus. He's not like this king. This is a king who would dishonor his brother and hurt his wife. This is a king who would honor his brother and take care of his wife. The true Messiah was not coming for selfish gain. Jesus did not come for selfish gain not to break the commandments of God, not to bring further shame and dishonor on Israel, but like a faithful bridegroom coming to take upon himself the debt owed by his bride, to take care of her, call her his own. He was coming to remove her shame, to make her fruitful, faced with the responsibility that would end up costing him everything 
he refused to take off his sandal and hand it to another. That's what Luke is hoping to prove to Theophilus, his contemporary readers, and, and to all of us here today. Jesus the Messiah, he's the true king. And he will surely redeem Israel. He will surely redeem all of us. He will surely redeem you. Let's keep reading. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So really Luke just offers a passing reference to the baptism of Christ when Jesus also had been baptized. Luke, Luke doesn't seem to place his, his emphasis on the baptism itself. Luke's emphasis is on the context of the baptism. When all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized. See, the, the emphasis is on Jesus being baptized along with everyone there. In being baptized with the rest of the people, Jesus identifies with them and identifies them with, with him. And that remains true today. He, he is the one who will lead us into the promised land. He is the new Joshua, the mighty warrior who goes before us. And it calls to mind Paul's words in Romans 6. We have been united with him in death. We shall certainly be united with him in resurrection. In fact, the apostle Paul tells us to go ahead and consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ because he identifies with us, because he unites us to himself. We are redeemed. We were childless widows, all of us. Childless widows, but we have been united in covenant to our kinsman redeemer and that's what baptism signals. So, sojourn, if you ever doubt the status of your own redemption, look no further than your own baptism. Remember your baptism. You remember it, Rose. Yeah. Say to yourself, I have been baptized with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me, in me. All right. Let me say one last thing about this baptism before we conclude. Verses 21 and 22 sound a lot like Ezekiel chapter 1. I think this is really cool. I think this is so amazing. I love this. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chabar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. We are told that the prophet Ezekiel was 30 years old. We're told that he was among the people of God alongside a body of water when the heavens opened and he was given a vision of God. So I think at least in a way, I think Luke's depiction of the baptism of Christ is presenting Jesus as the greater Ezekiel, the greater prophet. 
And that seems to complete a full picture of the painting that Luke is giving us in this passage. Because follow me on this. We've seen that Jesus was being ordained as a priest, the greater Boaz, the faithful redeemer who like an ox would tread out the grain on the threshing floor and make a childless widow fruitful again. We've seen that Jesus was being ordained as a king, the righteous ruler beside whom King Herod was a counterfeit at best. And we've seen that Jesus was ordained to be a prophet, the greater Ezekiel who's not only given visions of God, but also hears him speak words of blessing from the heavens and with whom God's spirit dwells bodily. If you're keeping track, these are the three primary offices under the old covenant, priest, prophet, king. And in each case, the person being commissioned to these offices was anointed. So if Luke is doing what it seems like he's doing, then all of these anointings have merged into this one ritual into this baptism. Jesus is the baptized priest, the baptized king, the baptized prophet of the new covenant. And because we are baptized, when we are baptized, the same can be said of us. In the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, Christians are partakers of his anointing. We are a priesthood serving in the temple, treading out the grain and offering the bread of life to the nations. We, the church, sojourn, we are the royal sons and daughters of God, kings and queens, and we have been called and exalted to reign alongside him. We are prophets, we are friends of God, filled with the Holy Spirit and called to testify to the will of God and the coming kingdom. That's who you are, brothers and sisters. That's who you are, sojourn. No matter what vocation you hold, no matter what age you are, no matter your gifts or abilities, this is who you are. I'll end, I'll end with a poem because I have to. It's in my job description. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I use poetry a lot. But I honestly, just to be more honest, I just think we need more poetry in our lives. So anytime I get a chance. Let's think about our passage as we read this. The baptism of Christ. The Trinity in front of us. Beginning here, we glimpse the three in one. The river runs, the clouds are torn apart. Father speaks, the spirit and the son reveal to us the single loving heart that beats behind the being of all things and calls and keeps and kindles us to light. The dove descends, the spirit soars and sings. You are beloved, you are my delight. In that quick light and life, as water spills and streams around the man like quickening rain, the voice that made the universe reveals the God and man who makes it new again. He calls to us, he calls us too, to step into that river, 
to die and rise and live and love forever. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, Lord, your word, Lord, we read it. It feels though every time we read it, Lord, there's, an, there's a chance that we might see something new. Lord, you continue to feed us with food that truly, that will never run out. Thank you for, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Or would you make us a people, Lord, who know that in Christ, Lord, that we have one who identifies with us in every way. And in that we are, we can truly know that we have been redeemed because we do not have a savior that saved us from afar, but saved us up close, came down to where we are. God, would you make us a people Lord, who consistently look and remember that because of him, Lord, because of this great priest, because of this great king, because of this great prophet, Lord, would you help us to believe that we too, Lord, have been redeemed and remade, made anew as prophets in the land, as kings and queens in the land, as priests of a new nation. Lord, and that we might too, Lord, continue to tread out the grain as it were, Lord, to, to provide food for those who are hungry, to provide food for the world. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would bring more people to come and eat at your table and be satisfied under your kingship and provision. That they would see you as the great Boaz who's come to redeem them, call them, and claim them. We love you. We need you. Please help us, we pray. We ask it in your name. Amen.